Welcome to the Rodcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rod. So my guest today has an interesting background in the sense that she has both vast academic uh, experience as well as practical experience uh, working with uh, companies in all different types of sectors located in different parts of the world. She works at Perbeck University of London and is the managing partner for Affinity Health, which we'll hear more about later on. It's my great uh, pleasure to welcome Dr. Rachel Lewis. Rachel, welcome to the broadcast. Thank you for having me. Hello. Hello. So we've known each other for a number of, of years and um, I've never, I think, really asked you like how you got into this space in working with, you know, mental health, well-being of organizations. I, I can't imagine anybody at the age of seven says, I want to work with companies okay. and their bad leadership skills. <laughs> well, no, I, but I think I did at the age of seven think about I wanted to work in mental health. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I grew up in a, in a family um with very severe mental ill health problems with with my dad and then subsequently with my mom and my brother um my dad spent quite a big proportion of our time of our childhood in hospital um and growing up in the 70s mental health was incredibly stigmatized so lots of my memories are where we um where we had to say my dad was on a business trip or we or we packed off my brother because he was seen as too sensitive to deal with it and, and where kind of my friends would be people in, in psychiatric hospitals, essentially. And so I knew I wanted to, I felt very strongly that mental ill health shouldn't be treated in the way it was treated. Um, it shouldn't be shut behind doors and we shouldn't be ashamed of it in the same, in, in that way. Um, and so I went to, I went to university to do psychology with the aim to do clinical psychology. But when I was in university and learning about clinical psychology, I just felt like that wasn't right either. I, I really wanted, I really wanted a, a solution where we could enable people with mental health to, to thrive and live without, without suppress, necessarily suppressing that or without cutting out vital parts of their their job my dad was a physicist and inventor and and one of the issues was that when he had to take his his drugs to to um to be able to enable him to cope um he was he would now be he would now be classified as bipolar um they they stopped him being able to do his work because he couldn't he couldn't be creative anymore and couldn't think straight so when i left university i I, by that time, I'd had a, I'd had a lot of life experience. My, my dad died. Um, I had I'd done all sorts of things like set up a Samaritan service at my university and various, various different things. So I managed to get a psychotherapy college to admit me to become a psychotherapist. Um, that's what I believed was, was going to be the right thing to do. But I was only 21 and and to cut a very long story short, 
because of the because of learning psychotherapy and it was psychoanalytic psychotherapy so very classically freudian based i had to have psychotherapy twice a week to be able to do it and and i had a breakdown um because i wasn't ready to open that box and so then i went into i couldn't i left psychology completely and worked in marketing for 10 years because that was that was to me safe and it was only after 10 years when i'd kind of got to got to the director level in marketing and met my now husband and he kind of shone a light on the fact that that i when somebody said what do you do i would say anything apart from marketing um that i needed to do something that was more akin to my values so i decided to go back to study psychology where i could look at mental health on a subclinical level um i think really really clearly thinking that really clearly knowing that i i still wouldn't feel safe to be able to deal with it at a clinical level so so yeah so that's how I'm at, that's kind of how i went into that area and and what's been <clears throat> your experience in terms of how like this new path aligned with when you, why you got in it for the first place which i was i imagine was was what was because you were obviously close to it but um you were interested in like helping people or you know apart from the obvious that it was very close to you what what was attractive about it in the first instance yeah i think making helping people making a difference yeah and do you ever miss because you have a very <clears throat> very similar trajectory to to mine in the sense that it was very like one to one clinical uh patient and then went into um more population prevention uh you know policy high level stuff to you know stop it from happening in the first place do you do you ever miss the gratification of uh seeing the immediate impact on like that that one person in front of you which you can't really see or it's very hard to see if you work you know on a policy uh instance no uh well no i i certainly don't miss working with people in a in a therapeutic way um no that that wasn't something that i wanted to do and and and, and it it wasn't something that i was able to do because of my own mental health at the time and now i think i still wouldn't want to do it um i i get i think that my work i'm lucky enough that my work has um big impacts and i can see big impacts from from the work that i do still um i think the only difference the only thing i do miss is that by by becoming as as you know when you get more senior you you kind of stop doing the actual work so much and i used to love i love doing the interviews i love doing the focus groups i love collecting data and analyzing data and i don't get to do that so much so yeah i don't don't particularly miss the one to one conversations but i miss i miss finding solutions and and actual getting in there doing the day to day data stuff that's an interesting point so i guess not only in probably your role but many roles 
that happens where if you get really good at something over a number of years, you're promoted to a position where you stop doing like the actual granular work and then uh, focus on like looking after other people and making sure they're doing it right. I mean, that, that, how did you deal with that transition? Um, especially with people that are really passionate about, you know, what they do, that must be difficult. Yeah. And that fact is what creates a lot of our work because when we first set up Affinity, it was, it was to try and uh, understand, well, to, it was on the recognition of the fact that managers are often the source of mental ill health and, and lack of wellbeing in organizations. Um, and managers are not trained appropriately to be able to work with people because, as you say, it's often the fact that you get promoted into management or into, into leadership because you're good at what you do. And, and it's not that you're good at managing people. So the, the tech, we get promoted on technical capability and, and don't have that personal capability built. Um, I think with me, I just, I, I have... It's been, affinity has been quite a quick, quick growth. And so until 2019, it was really just a, just a handful of us that were less than a handful. And so I did get stuck in with everything. It's only really been in the last few years. And, and I think it's taken a lot of awareness from me that that's, that actual managing people's not my strength either. Um, and so to get other people to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. Yeah. I think that, yeah, you. I know that managers can learn it, and we've we've produced so many things and tools, and shown in research that managers can learn to be good people managers. But that doesn't mean you particularly want to. Well, and, yeah. According to according to Kerry, twenty percent can't be overtrained, <laughs> which I think <laughs> might be an underestimate. But um, so tell me more about uh, Affinity. Like when, when did that start? So it was, it was created in 2004. So back when, um, back when I went back to study um, occupational psychology, um, my, my lecturer there at, at Goldsmiths um, was Joe Yarka. And um, Joe Yarka and I immediately had a connection and when I finished my master's at the end of 2004 and went back into consultancy as, a, as an occupational psychologist or trainee occupational psychologist, um, Joe quickly poached me back to back to Goldsmiths. Um, and that's where we started working together. So we started working on this project that was funded by the Health and Safety Executive and CIPD that was about um, developing management competencies to prevent and reduce stress um so it's very much what i wanted to do and very much in my in my area of expertise and there was three of us so joe and emma joe emma was a, a practitioner occupational psychologist joe was the the academic and they they appointed me to be the research associate on that project um so and set up affinity to uh, to essentially enable that project um, then the next year in 2005, the project the project expanded again, and Joe and Emma brought me in as a third director in, in the business. 
So, so the affinity started in 2004 and I started in two. And where did the name come from? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? I don't know. I don't know. I think we all, I, I kind of remember, I think we just played around with lots of ideas. I don't know. There's lots of affinities out there. Um, so we now struggle with people looking for affinity and, and getting hundreds of different places. And that and that brings me to, to something I wanted to ask you, which was, I, I know this wasn't like probably your ultimate like life goal, but I mean, I'm always interested in marketing and I find it so fascinating and one of seems to be one of the, the key tools to a lot of the problems in public health and health um, that we have just not gotten right in, in the health sector. And, um, and so I've become really obsessed with, with um, you know, some of the gurus on, you know, on marketing gurus. And it seems that there's a lot of like, crossover and cross-pollination between like some of the theories, some of the best practice between marketing and like mental health and the well-being. And then when you listen to them, they, they have, a lot of them have like pretty amazing grasp on like clinical psychology, like Freudian, you know, theory and all that stuff. I mean, how have you maybe consciously or subconsciously used that skill set in your in your work that you do today yeah i think there's a huge crossover between between well i, I guess behavioral science sits but sits almost between psychology and and marketing um i think it's really interesting i think that when i was when i worked in marketing i i it was the sales promotion branch of marketing so what i did was was buy widgets um, so, so it doesn't it doesn't happen so much now. But but back back then, if you bought um, if you bought a packet of tea, you would have maybe have a free gift tacked on the side of the tea. So you might have I did it for Tetley. So you might have Tetley teapots, or you might have um, things. Or when you bought um, when you bought so many packets of cereal, you could apply, and that would you would get a free toy or a free gift or whatever. And and what I did was I decided on what those promotions were, bought those things and secured those things from China and, and kind of worked out all the packaging groups. So some of them were we'd buy 10 million widgets for a promotion type thing. And it was, it was crazy, wow. crazy things. But, <laughs> so that was, that was you because that was, that was like my biggest <laughs> motivator growing up in the US is that was their... They're like main gimmick to get kids to buy products. And the cereal boxes used to have yeah, like actual that was toys in them. And uh, I used to dump the cereal like just to find the, the toy. And then and then it stopped all yeah. of a sudden. Um, I guess it was either too expensive or kids were choking on the toys. It was right? really expensive. It's really expensive. But, but then it's, and, and also with the, war for space lots of the things were used to be tacked onto the side of the box but it took up too much shelf space so then they started saying they had to be inside and then they weren't as they weren't 
they were still as expensive, but they weren't as tempting because there was something about seeing the product that that people liked as well. Um, oh, that's interesting. But yeah, it was really fun. But what it didn't do was teach me a lot about behavioral science because <laughs> because essentially what I would do is is get lots of ideas for toys, have focus groups with kids to get them to say which one they'd go crazy over. Um, mm. Or, or if it was totally the kind of tea buying public, different demographic, and then buy them. Whereas, yeah, I think that that the marketing you're talking about is that is the bit that's much more, much more linked to what we do and much more exciting, which is about behavioural science and using behavioural science to influence decisions, um, which is something I didn't really do. Well, I mean, having said that, I mean, you you'd have kids in a room and you were you were getting information and getting their feedback and fast forward years later you have big kids <laughs> in a room that I guess sometimes so. act worse and uh and trying to get the insight into what you know yeah uh, motivates them and whatnot so so maybe not so different <laughs> well I mean I think there were masses of skills to follow over so skills of communicating things clearly clears of skills of being able to sell something and being being comfortable selling something and and yeah and procuring things from different people and and so yeah I think there were loads of skills and being comfortable in in rooms presenting things which I think lots of people if they come from a classic academic background going into my kind of field wouldn't perhaps have that ability to talk like that and be like that and I I certainly see the shortcomings of like public health in 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 that behavior change science uh crossover where like a lot of the 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 type of communication in, in the health space is so old and outdated and boring and there's this massive gap between I think they call it like translational uh, translational policy where you have like scientists coming up with, with the research and the evidence and then someone has to take that message, uh, put it through a magical conveyor belt where it produces something that's consumable for the general public. And that magic machine seems to be missing uh, a lot of the time. With, with the increase in in like uh interest in like mental health in the last couple of years have you seen that that process get better or is it in your opinion like still a long long way i think for i think one of the one of the recommendations we give constantly to organizations is about simplifying their communications i think one of the things that's been enabled by having so many different routes to be able to speak to people is people get bombarded with messages and don't listen to any of it. Um, so d- I think that lots of organisations come to us with presenting with so many things they do for their employees, but then you ask their employees and they don't know they don't know that they're doing anything. So it's those it's those back to those simple basic rules of how to achieve cut through and what's your prioritization message and what's the key thing you want people to take away i think there's that thing about we need to get away from except thinking people want to take learn it all to thinking people want to come away with one thing 
and we we kind of do that in the training we do so we do quite a lot of leadership training now and um one of the things i always say at the beginning of sessions is that i don't want you to come away from this thinking you have to remember everything and and that everything's going to be important to you or that you're going to learn everything or you're going to agree with everything i just want you to have the goal of coming away with with one or two things that you think are going to be useful in your practice because otherwise people otherwise you get bombarded by by this information and therefore you don't pay attention whereas if you come from a different lens in terms of i'm going to scan things and pick out the key things then you're more likely to pay attention but i wanted to ask you two two things i really want to ask you um one of them is something that i've been conflicted with over the last year i think and it's about the fact that these younger generations, you know, have this, what they call like T-type scanning, reading, where they just read like, you know, they scan stuff and they read it. And then best case scenario, you know, most of them are now going to other platforms that are producing content that's like 30 seconds, 10 seconds, you know, whether it's TikTok or Instagram. And while we may say, oh, well, that's like, you know, that's for kids or whatnot, probably the reality is that the same as when radio like transitioned into television as a platform for communication, um, it became the main stream. I, I think even if it's not, you know, Twitter, X, uh, these platforms, there will be a, a natural progression where comms gets like shorter and you get more of it. Do you, have you been, or what are your thoughts on like as researchers and, and maybe we haven't been used to using those platforms, like leverage, leveraging them to reach a wider audience? And even if we say, well, we're not really interested in that audience now, it might be the, the the form of communication we use in five years. Like, what are your thoughts? Have you dabbled into that? Are you, yeah, not really interested in going into that space? No, I really agree. And I'd, I think one of the things that is the issue is that we don't do enough tailoring of our communications so we do we do communications that go to everybody, and that and one of the so one of the one of the research things we've been doing over the last couple of years is looking at what what maturity of well being offering means for for organisations, and one of those things means moving from ensuring everybody has access to to well being communications to ensuring that the right people have access to the right communications. And, and I think that's where these things come on board. So you have to, it's almost the next stage of the next stage of maturity. You have your things for everybody. And the next stage is saying, okay, how do we get the people to listen? Um, right. Um, and I think, I think we need to use all, all the technology that's enabled to us to do that. I would, somebody told me the other day that some, that there's a, occupational psychologist on tiktok that's got something like four million viewers and and i think i i think i'm i'm all up for it i think we need to um because 
yeah, I, I think we just need to get the message across in the, in the right way. I also think there's a, and something that I've become increasingly passionate about, and I guess is a progression from my concern for stigmatization of people mental health wise is is the the fact that well-being communications are often being delivered to or being picked up by the the people who already have voice and already have privileged in organizations and the extent to which the extent to which people who don't have voice or from our on for stigmatized or minority communities have access to the things that organizations are giving either because they can't access it or they're they're actually not available um, or can't read it or whatever um, and I think that's slightly different to the platform used but it it relates to the idea of tailoring and the idea of thinking we need to get people to have a voice yeah I guess where I was coming at it from was was maybe not so much the platform but maybe more the 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 style so in in this space that you and i work like the mental health and well-being space for for uh workplaces it's attracted so much attention that it's kind of gone um it's kind of gone in in all directions um which is good because more people have access to it but it's bad because it's it's on a bit uncontrolled where like there's no real definition of you know what well-being is, what wellness is. It goes into all these places, like hot rocks and yoga, and um, and then I've even heard recently more into like the security side of like uh, safety and of like uh, when if there's somebody like an active shooter in the workplace, which is you know something I've never thought of. Um, and so I've started to see like some people who have been very successful and I think some of the messaging is correct, but using very, let's say non like traditional styles of communicating, like very kind of, what's the word, like very informal. And my first reaction, I think as, as a, like an academic was, was all, oh, yeah, that's not very professional. But then when you think about it, um, if they're, as you say, reaching like a wider audience, I mean, is, is there some, maybe some value in doing that? Yeah, I think there's the, there, there's the distinction between, for me, there's the distinction between I don't want to do things just about well-being. I'm, I'm, that mine's always going to be cited in well-being at work. And so I suppose that demands slightly different parameters. Um, in terms of the types of things that you would recommend and types of things that you would say, um, but I but I completely agree. I think that we need to have our messaging simpler. We need to um, we need to actually talk talk in more simple ways. We need to. Uh, I know for me that the evidence is really important. So I think that it. I think seeing the people from the wider well-being field being able to talk about evidence-based ways in a in an accessible way could is a huge learning for me and is something I'd like to I'd very much like to start to develop a, a bigger a bigger wider voice I take to scary but but maybe I'd, I feel like Instagram's my first 
Instagram feels like my safer space than TikTok. The other question I really wanted to ask you, which is um, I appreciate maybe not an easy one. Yeah. The other thing I've been struggling over the years to come up with an answer for is as somebody who's who's designing like workplace policy and programs and creating safety nets for employees and all this infrastructure in the workplace to help people thrive and prevent people from you know burning out and all these issues we we work with i find it complicated deciding what the like the cutoff points and the thresholds are for taking action in protecting employees from an employee that maybe is is having an effect on on others around them so i'll give you an example as we destigmatize mental health in the workplace we say well if somebody comes in with uh, a mental health condition we should treat it as a medical condition and not stigmatize it not treat it any differently so Somebody comes in and says, oh, yeah, I have you know, bipolar disorder or depression. She can stigmatize them and say, okay, well, hold on. Let's, let's put you in a corner or in a box uh, somewhere. Like you wouldn't do that with somebody who has cancer that comes into the office. So why should you do it for mental health? But, but, and this is where it's probably controversial, there's a difference between somebody who comes in with cancer in the office and is not transmissible as a disease or a condition to the person next to them, saying with diabetes. Whereas with mental health, that person, especially if they're a manager uh, and they have a condition, that condition can affect the mental health of the person sitting next to them. So as an employer, like where... Do you draw the line and say, um, I've given you everything, every single resource I have at my disposal. Um, we've created, you know, all the best practice stuff, like mutual plans on how to manage um, everything accordingly, according to best practice in terms of what your job role, uh, what your triggers are, how we can deal with those, uh, et cetera. Everything's been set up. And that person's condition is 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 uh, affecting others, and other people around them are becoming depressed, are burning out for whatever reason. I mean, how do you reconcile like that and and say, okay, you know what? You're I've I've tried to be as uh, understanding as possible, but now it's affecting my entire workforce. I mean, have you come uh, come across with that and? What have you seen that organizations have done to, you know, walk that very tricky tightrope? Sorry, that was a really long question, but <laughs> no, it's a, and it's a really good one. I think firstly, I I would, given the given the level of comorbidity of mental illness with cancer, I would argue that cancer patients could probably be included in that question quite a lot. Um, in the in the workplace because of the the mental health issues they would probably present with as well um and however i think there's i think there's a few things i think firstly um reasonable adjustments traditionally used to be handled by either 
outsource people or occupational health or HR. And and what we've been working on and, and trying to push for is where reasonable adjustments are are co-created by a manager and and the employee. Um, and what that means is that is that it's not just somebody who's not within the team saying this what what is it you need? Okay, we'll we'll sort that out for you. It's saying it's it's enabling the manager and the employee to have a conversation about okay, what is it we need? Um, and and the manager therefore knowing knowing within the context of their work, within the context of the way that they work, what is and isn't going to be possible and what isn't isn't going to be okay. Um, the so I think I think the first thing is that it's about it's about thinking about reasonable adjustments and co-creation of roles by those involved in the roles. Um, I think the second thing is that we we just haven't equipped managers generally with being able to have difficult conversations, um, and I think we shy away from those conversations that that feel awkward, and therefore things like this become become big bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you can equip managers managers and even HR professionals to have the skills to to speak to somebody who's in distress to to um, to to have those difficult conversations to ha- to deliver feedback that might not be positive feedback um, then you then you prevent a snowballing of these things happening I think the third thing is making sure that um, that managers and teams know the importance of psychological safety and that being a key a key cornerstone of the way that you want to set up your team and your organization and that being that everybody in the in the team and the organization is able to is able to stand up and say this is this is an issue um and be heard because these and and the fact is there will be cases where because of because of somebody's diagnosis or because of somebody's behavior that they're they're not able to stay in the workplace um, or stay in that particular team but that needs to be that needs to be developed and being able to have a constant communication and a conversation throughout I don't believe at all that everybody with mental health should be enabled to work in the way that they want to in the workplace that it's got to be something that is co-created and is delivered in mind with both business goals and the employee goals. And I guess the, the, the difficult question is like what what is the objective way to define like when that snowball is too big and you say, you know what, it's not working. Like how do you set that like line in the sand? So I don't think there should ever be the snowball. I think the problem comes when there's the snowball. If you have a if you have a managed a managed return to work process or a managed adjustment of of uh, your employee, then you would have regular meetings whereby you go against the objectives. You ask whether they've worked. The manager at the time would have feedback from everybody in the team about whether that's worked. You would then develop another solution if that doesn't work. If so, so essentially, it's not saying it's not getting to a stage where it's a surprise to anybody and it's not getting to a stage where where nothing's happened and it's and it's got worse and worse and worse it's where it's where you both in the process have agency and, and are both looking at looking at what can be done and and yet in in 
some cases it it would be the case that that somebody would would not be able to stay in work or in that particular role yeah no that that makes sense um i mean not not too far from from um from topic but you always want to peer in to see what the chef's eating at home and what the Formula One team and what car they're driving. Um, I'd be interested to hear like what you've set up at Affinity Health with the people you work with. Yeah, well, we're still small, so there's only twelve of us. Um, so some of the things are easier to do. Some are some are, are less easy to do. I think that the key thing and the thing that I mean, I know I've bored you about it many a time, but the what we would what we would propose in terms of mental health and protecting protecting well-being is around prevention um, and that being able to provide the best work environment we can so um, our, everybody at work can work entirely flexibly so they have they have contracts whereby they can work full-time if they want to but they can go down to one day contract if they want to um, at any point um, we don't record holidays so oh, people can take People can take holidays, um, as many holidays as they want, when they want. Um, the So what we do is we just have a spreadsheet where people say when they're taking holiday. And obviously they, they are autonomous and we trust them that that doesn't impede on client goals. Um, do, you, do you force people to take holiday? So it's an interesting thing because what we find is that I think people take fewer holidays than they should because they because they don't have an allocation almost. Yes. Um, and, and so what we see is that some take their holidays because they have levers or, or such as school holidays or kids being off or whatever. And others who perhaps don't have kids or don't have those those kind of partners or levers to take them take fewer holidays so so yeah we're certainly pushing those type of things and starting pushing a few a few people in our team to to take more holidays and take longer holidays the other thing i think the other thing that's really important to us as a as a business is is learning and continually developing so um everybody that that wants to we we pay for them to to do their professional qualifications in occupational psychology so currently four of the 12 of our employees are are going through the doctoral program to become um, doctors of occupational psychology. Um, and my one of my favorite topics: uh, how do you measure like well-being within your organization? Yes. Beyond like the traditional stuff of like sick leave and yeah, we it's something that we're we just. I think that in the last year we've grown from being three people to twelve people. Um, no, we've grown from being five people to twelve people in the last year. So, so the, um, it. This is an ongoing question about how we're going to formalise processes in terms of measuring it. Um, at the moment, we do it informally. So, with with everyone, we have we have twice weekly check ins to talk to them about how they're doing. Talk. And then for, for Joe and I, who are the, who run the business, we, we talk to everybody once every two weeks about what 
what needs to keep on doing with their job, what what they want stopped, what we could do differently, and so on, and we and we measure it like that. But I think as we grow, we will need to put some more formal measurements in. And who who asks you? You and Joe. <laughs> yeah, we ask. Well, luckily, I think we're blessed to have each other, and so I think often in a business it would be one person set it up, and that and I and I appreciate that would be a really difficult place. I would know that would be a difficult place. Generally, we check on in, in each other. Um, but yeah, I think we could we could definitely do better for ourselves. We both of us often support other people and and not necessarily ourselves. Yeah, well, that's good. You have you have each other. Yeah. Um, I I can ask you a million questions and talk to you for for hours, but. Uh, I know we're we're probably out of time. One last question. Uh, So you have this amazing line of sight into um, all these different things that are out there to help people's mental health and well-being. Is there something like you've recently discovered, maybe in the last 12 months, you know, this year, that you thought, oh, wow, that's amazing. That's made a, a really big impact on my own health and well-being. It could be physical health or mental health. Mm. Is, there, is there anything? So I think from the workplace point of view, that, um, that what we know is that, is that particularly post-pandemic flexibility is going to be the key and is the key um, for organisations to think about that job design. In terms of me personally, um, and it's not that I've discovered in the last year, but it's something that personally has changed my mental health and is a practice that is absolutely fundamental to me, is is practice of gratitude. Um, And gratitude is something I could not not do because that's that's what keeps me well. Do you keep a journal? Yeah keep a journal um so yeah every day three things but but actually I find that because I do it now as a practice I find well as we know that it works is that is that as I'm walking around I will I will think of things that I want to write later in my journal so I'm so I I have my my ears out for positive things things I'm grateful for that's really interesting. Um, I never thought of, of it in that sense that you're prepping yourself throughout the day of what you're going to be grateful for. And it reminded me of something I heard. Yeah, I heard this guy say, it was really interesting, a really interesting analogy. He said that, like, um, and I'm sure there's so much science behind this on, on how your thoughts, and they've always said this, how your thoughts make up who you are and your emotions and what you think about then gets translated into your actions and your cortisol levels and neurotransmitters. And he equated it to a garden. So what you plant today is what you're going to get out tomorrow. So if you plant an avocado seed, you know, you're going to get a a tree. Um, If you're planting uh, flowers, you're going to get, flowers in a week and a month uh, seeds of course and if you're planning like 
uh, whatever you plan, if you're planning nasty stuff, you're going to get weeds when they're out of it. And so it's the same with thoughts. Like if you have continuous positive thoughts, um, you're going to get amazing stuff out of it. So that it makes sense, yeah, to think of it throughout the day. I did it for a while and then I um, stopped, but I think I, I still have my journal. I need to pick it up again. Yeah, do it. Um, there's there's a really good there's really good apps as well. I like the I like your analogy of the garden, and my husband uses one called Gratitude Garden, which is a free app. Oh. And with that, you build a you create a garden based on the amount of times you enter into your journal. So, oh wow, that's a really good so, one. Yeah, so that's really nice, oh, <laughs> and nice. so you can see it kind of dying down um, if you don't do it. Wow, that is brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> that is such a good idea. Wow, I'm, I'm definitely going to download that. <laughs> well, um, thanks so much, Rachel. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I did not lose my voice, so that's good. Yeah, been lovely. I might lose Thank it in the next call, though. Well, maybe it won't be as nice as our call. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Hey, thanks for listening, folks. If you enjoyed that, please hit subscribe, like, and share. See you next time.